We turn now to the book of Jude. It's only one chapter in this book. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, have given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, laid autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, 
be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. In connection with our scripture reading, we'll turn again to Valdic Confession, Article 12, on the creation of all things. We believe that the Father created heaven and earth and all other creatures from nothing, when it seemed good to him by his word, that is to say, by his Son. He has given all creatures their being, form, and appearance, and their various functions for serving their Creator. Even now he also sustains and governs them all according to his eternal providence and by his infinite power, that they may serve man in order that man may serve God. He has also created the angels good, that they might be his messengers and serve his elect. Some of them have fallen from the excellence in which God created them into eternal perdition. And the others have persisted and remained in their original state by the grace of God. The devils and evil spirits are so corrupt that they are enemies of God and of everything good. They lie in wait for the church and every member of it, like thieves with all their power to destroy and spoil everything by their deceptions. So then, by their own wickedness, they are condemned to everlasting damnation, daily awaiting their torments. For that reason, we detest the error of the Sadducees, who deny that there are spirits and angels, and also the error of the Manichaeans, who say that the devils originated by themselves, being evil by nature, without having been corrupted. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's been observed that uh, our confessions in some respects reflect the time in which they were written, and I suppose that could be said also of Article Chapter 12, uh, concerning the creation of all things. I suppose that if such a confession were made by the Christian Church today and its adherence to the teaching of God's Word uh, in our own setting, that there would probably be a, an explicit uh refutation or rejection of evolutionary theory. Uh, we don't have that in this article, though it does teach that God created the world out of nothing. Um, and I suppose also it could be uh, observed that in the context of, uh, of Article 12, certainly in the Middle Ages there was a kind of attention to uh, angels and devils uh, that... Uh, was perhaps more pronounced than it is, even in the professing church today. And uh, the artwork of the time uh, puts that on display, which often involves depictions of evil of evil spirits. And uh, often that uh, went beyond Scripture, and it was kind of excessive. And the Protestant Reformation brought a kind of biblical balance and, and sobriety also to this, this issue. That doesn't mean that the reality of, of Satan and demons and their power and activity was uh, minimized or denied. In fact, if you read through the, the writings of uh, uh, some of the reformers like John Calvin and Martin Luther, you'll probably find more references to the devil than you will typically find in modern Christian uh, writings. Uh, during my college years, I, I had to do a, a research paper on a subject of my choice, and I, I chose to do a research, research paper on the frequency with which uh, uh, the devil or Satan was referenced in a church magazine. And it was a church magazine that went back over a 100 years, and so it did involve a lot of reading of articles. And I did kind of 
uh, calculate the number of references and the context in which they were given. And it was kind of an extensive study, statistical study, but it demonstrated uh, that as the years progressed, as the decades progressed, there were fewer and fewer references to the devil. Uh, and then in those uh, first years in which this magazine was first published. And so it provided a kind of uh, scientific, if you will, objective proof that uh, as time went by, less and less attention was given to the devil. And uh, even the way in which the devil was referred to uh, changed over the years. We may live in a situation where even in the professing church, the reality of Satan, his presence in power, on the one hand, may be ignored or, or minimized. And yet, at the same time, in our world, there is a growing attention to otherworldly powers, imaginary powers, typically. Uh, science fiction and fantasy films often feature uh, aliens of one kind or another, or demons, or uh, some kind of superhero that... Uh, uh, involves other earthly powers, perhaps that might be more closely associated with angelic beings than human beings in terms of their ability. Non-human intelligent creatures of uh, every imaginable kind are displayed on the big screen and, uh, every imaginable kind of monster, not, not the sea monsters that we sang about, uh, in, uh, Psalm 148, but uh, imaginary monsters and demons, and uh, sometimes an unhealthy uh, exaggeration of evil power is also found even in the professing church. And there is a spirit of this or a spirit of that that has infected people or homes or taken possession of them that, that need to be exercised in some manner or another. So we need to give biblical attention to this subject as our confession does, to avoid errors in our thinking, to avoid the neglect of the reality of Satan and evil spirits, or to avoid an excessive kind of uh, attention to them that veers into an unbiblical direction, or to avoid speculation. So our confession on this subject is extremely important. By it, we do confess that we believe that there are angels and evil spirits. I use the term evil spirits. Our confession speaks of devils. And I think that's to be used uh, synonymously with with demons or evil spirits. Perhaps demons would be a, a better and more consistent translation of the of the word that is uh used in the New Testament in the Greek language to describe evil spirits as as demons rather than devils, because uh, according to the New Testament, it appears that there is one devil, one adversary, who is the devil. Uh, but e there are evil spirits, indeed. There are demons. And I, I think we should just understand this reference to the devils as a way of uh, describing evil spirits or or demons, to use the, the biblical terminology. But there are uh, angels and there are evil spirits. We want to begin by our consideration of the, the creation of angels. And we want to speak indeed of the creation of angels. Because God did not create demons. Nor did God create sinners. God created angels. 
who by their own wickedness would become demons. And God created man in his own image, who by his own wickedness would become fallen sinners. But God created everything good, and that includes mankind, and that includes angels at the original creation. Angels are creatures, that is, they are created beings. They are given existence uh, within time. And this is opposed to the Manichaean heresy that our confession makes reference to, as if uh, there are these eternal principles of good in, and evil, uh, and uh, the demons have derived their wickedness of themselves, which is uh, hard to describe or imagine unless you attribute to them some kind of self-existent and eternal uh, power. But we must uh, understand that that angels are created. They are creatures. Now, when it comes to the question of when God made the angels, I suppose there is a danger of speculation because the, the Bible doesn't uh, answer every question that we might raise about such matters. It is inferred that they were made on the first day of creation. In the book of Job's, there is a reference to, to angels at uh, the creation of the world where the Lord questions Job, and he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? That last verse, uh, a reference uh, to to the angels under this designation. Uh, but as to the timing of their creation, if we to uh, understand them as being created on the first day, we might raise questions about the shortness of their existence before the fall, the suddenness of their rebellion against the Lord. And we, we may not uh, be able to answer those questions in a way that might satisfy our, our perception of time. Just because they are creatures and creatures of time, uh, does not involve an assumption that their perception or their experience of time must be measured by our own. And I suppose that's all we'll say about that in terms of the time of their creation. Uh, but they are creatures. They are not eternal. And uh, they were made in time. Uh, angels are also alike in some respects and unlike man in other respects. They are like man in the fact that they are moral beings. They are holy by their creation and they became corrupted and unholy and wicked. And they are, they are reasonable beings. Uh, they inquire into, uh, the salvation that God has achieved in the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn from first Peter. They're volitional beings by their own choice, by their own wickedness, some of them became evil. And they are willing servants of God. They obey his word. They communicate in scripture. And so in some respects, they are, they are like man. In others, they are unlike us. Uh, they are without physical bodies. Uh, they are called spirits. In Psalm 103, he makes uh, his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. And uh, we do not see, have to see a contradiction 
uh, to this by the fact that they appeared in bodily form on many occasions in Scripture. Uh, they appeared as as men, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that they they possess bodies like like human beings do. They do not have flesh and bones, and uh, they may uh, occupy uh, small places, a great number of them. Remember the the demon-possessed man who was called Legion because he was possessed by thousands of uh, demons. And again, this uh, must be uh, considered in view of uh, a certain interpretation of a passage in Genesis that you may have wondered about in the past where in uh, the description of the growing wickedness of men, it says that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all who they chose. And then it says, uh, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And there is a way of interpreting this passage, which I believe is false, which interprets this to say that the sons of God were these fallen angels who uh, were attracted to the beauty of uh, that line of Cain. And uh, they took wives from them and had children by them. And uh, they are the Nephilim or the, or the giants, these mighty men of old that uh, supposedly would be some mixture of human and angel uh, creature. Uh, but Jesus said that uh, the angels neither marry nor are given in marriage, and uh, uh, we're not to think uh, and imagine that angels have the capacity of reproduction, or we have no reason to think that they are uh, to be thought of in terms of male and female, so that these angels were attracted to these beautiful women. So it involves a lot of speculation that seems to be quite contrary to the teaching of Scripture and would uh, uh, confuse, I think, the, the, the difference between the nature of angels as these spiritual beings and the nature of man whom God created with the capacity for marriage and for, and for uh, reproduction. And uh, I don't believe that Jude supports that teaching, uh, we, we read of, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah that in similar manner, they have given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh or unnatural desires. And some have said, well, yeah, see, in similar manner, like the angels of the previous verse who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. But the similarity, I do not believe involves in in uh, sexual perversion of some kind or other, but it, the similarity refers to the fact that they are facing judgment. The angels are reserved in chains of darkness for the great day that is to come, and uh, likewise the the wicked people of the past are facing God's vengeance. Either that or the similarity lies in the fact that they left their their first and proper place of submission and obedience to God, and they rebelled against that. And suffer the consequences. So I don't believe that uh, that uh, the Bible supports the idea that angelic beings or fallen angels somehow came to earth and they uh, married women and had children by them. That would uh, 
conflict what the Bible teaches, I believe, concerning the difference between angelic beings and human beings. They belong to that invisible word, world of which uh, Paul speaks, where it says, by Christ all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all uh, things were created through him and for him. A passage which also may suggest a, a possible ranking or a kind of order among these invisible uh, spiritual beings. There certainly are angelic beings of different kinds. The Bible speaks of cherubim. And uh, the, the word cherubim is plural. And so it's improper to speak of cherubims because cherubim is more than one cherub. Uh, cherubim. Cherubim were um, placed at the gates, the entrance of uh, of paradise after uh, mankind fell in Adam and were excluded from the garden. Uh, cherubim are depicted as these four-faced creatures. They're like like holy guardians associated with the glorious presence of God. And there is mystery surrounding uh, these beings in their description but they are some kind of creature or they're some kind of representative uh, creature, but certainly there is a reference to cherubim in Scripture, and they appear to be distinguished also perhaps from seraphim, bright or burning ones, described in Isaiah chapter 6, whereas cherubim are depicted in one place as having uh, four faces and four wings, the seraphim, in Isaiah chapter 6 are depicted as those with six wings covering their their faces and their feet, rather for and crying, holy, holy, holy. There appear to be different kinds of angelic creatures. We're given instances in Scripture where angels have personal names. In Jude chapter 9, there is a reference to, to Michael, who is called an archangel or the chief prince, also spoken of in the book of Daniel. And then, of course, there is Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, who is spoken of in the Gospels in connection with uh, the birth of our Savior and the messages that uh, Gabriel communicated from the Lord on that occasion. Angels are God's servants. They are glorious. They are mighty. And they do God's will. I know that's a brief summary, but those are some of the biblical teachings with respect to uh, these angels as created beings. But we want to consider further the, the ministry of angels. What do they do? What are the circumstances in which we uh, find reference to angels? Well, very often they are uh, closely associated with great works, great appearances of God. The law was given through the ministry of angels. Often they are involved in remarkable judgments. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, in many instances in the scripture, God sent an angel uh, to uh, destroy the Assyrian army to protect his people. But most prominently, we are to understand that angels are revealed in scripture as God's messengers. In fact, the very word angel means messenger. And so when we read in the first, uh, or in the chapter, chapter two and three of the book of Revelation, 
of the Lord speaking to the angel of the churches, uh, that could well be interpreted messenger and probably with a reference to a human messenger of these churches because the word angel and messenger really are one and the same and they are messengers of God and uh, they are especially involved in communicating from heaven on extraordinary occasions and important events. They serve this purpose, for example, in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the ministry of Christ. But their work as messengers is not limited to that. Uh, we find also angels uh, serving as messengers to the apostles while in prison in Acts chapter 5. Uh, an angel was a messenger to Philip in Acts chapter 8. Uh, an angel was sent to Cornelius in Acts chapter 19 to Peter in prison in Acts chapter 12, to Paul in Acts chapter 27, uh, to John on the Isle of Patmos, communicating the, the content of the book of Revelation. And uh, one thing that these appearances and these messages had in common is that they took place during that period of the founding of the Christian church. Uh, they took place before the the scriptures were complete, and that also may be an important explanation for the fact that uh, we do not rely upon angels, nor do we experience angels in such a manner as uh, appearing in some form and giving giving messages uh, to us. They were agents, they were ministers of God's special revelation, and uh, that was a function that they served in scripture. But we want to look also at the ordinary and the ongoing ministry of angels as taught in Scripture. And perhaps this is the the kind of wonderful ongoing ministry of angels that we tend to forget simply because we do not experience in, in what to us are obviously supernatural ways. But the Bible teaches that they carry on uh, an ongoing ministry to God's people. In fact, uh, the letter to the Hebrews describes uh, angels when it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? They serve God's elect, we confess. Not they served in the past, but we confess uh, the ministry of angels as an ongoing ministry and service of God's elect. And we might uh, understand that service in terms of their protection. We read from Psalm 91, the promise of God giving his angels charge over, over his people to protect them. It's a wonderful thing to think about. Uh, when you consider sometimes that, in a way, we live our lives surrounded by a thousand potential ways to die. Ever think of children playing in the playground, riding their bikes on the street? I'm sure you mothers have, and you can, you have a lot to worry about when you think of how vulnerable they are to accidents and things that could happen to them. But it's good to remember that, uh, God's angels are active and busy protecting his saints. So you might say that, uh, that, uh, we are, we are immortal. We are invincible. We are untouchable until it should please God to, in his sovereign and wise providence, 
to either take us from this life unto himself or bring injury or accident upon us for his good purposes. But it may well be that we are totally unaware of a, of a multitude of ways in which the angels actually are involved in protecting God's people that we're just not able to identify specifically. But we should believe in such a ministry of, of God's uh, protecting servants. The, the angels are revealed in Scripture as those who transport the souls of believers upon death. The angels carried Lazarus into Abraham's bosom. Or Matthew 24, its description of the, of the day of judgment, where the angels are sent forth to gather God's elect from the four corners of the earth. They are God's instruments for the protection of his people. Sometimes we read of angels involved as instruments of judgment against those who persecute uh, God's people. I recently read in Acts chapter 12 of Herod, uh, who was extolled as a god and who did not give God glory. And we're told that angels struck him and he was eaten with worms and he died. And it's a pretty horrific description of a sudden judgment from God. Now, I wouldn't want to suggest that we go around drawing conclusions about anyone's sudden death and say, oh, an angel killed him. But uh, the fact is that uh, in- angels may also be instrumental in God executing his purposes of judgment against those who would who would persecute his church. Perhaps there are many things that are unknown to us, many ways in which angels serve God's elect in which we might not be aware of, and yet we're called to believe that uh, they are active in this purpose. We're, we're told that an angel strengthened Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was in great distress and trouble and anguish. God sent an angel to strengthen him. What does that mean? That he was just inwardly fortified, that he was given a kind of peace and composure through the ministry of angels? But could not that also be the way God works in the lives of his people in ways that we might not be able to trace and identify specifically, but ways in which God is active, helping Christians in, in need, in trouble or distress today? These are ways that God works in our lives. And we ought not to draw a conclusion from this that, well, doesn't that make, uh, uh, doesn't that take away from the presence and the work of God? Does that make Jesus, does that make the Holy Spirit more distant from us? Well, such a way of thinking ought not to be allowed. In other words, our belief and attention to angels ought not to veer in the direction of worship. It ought not to veer in the, in the direction of, of somehow uh, placing them before the eye of faith at the expense of God's presence and work by his spirit through his word. The book of Colossians warns against intruding into things that are beyond us, and it warns against the worship of angels. But on the other hand, angels must not be forgotten. They must not be ignored. God doesn't need angels, we might say. Yes, indeed. God shows his goodness. God shows his power also through angels. Think of how God shows his goodness to the angels in creating them. He gave them life. He gives them the joy of serving God, the joy of God's presence. They are included in God's cosmic purpose to gather all things in heaven and on earth into one through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We read of that in Ephesians 1 verse 10. We read in 1 Peter that the angels, they take a great interest in the doctrine of salvation. They desire to look into these things, to inquire into the meaning of the of the suffering of Christ and the glory that followed. They are present in the worship of God's people. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10. In fact, in our corporate worship, we are to understand that we are, are, are not simply allowed the presence of angels coming to us, but we are admitted into uh, the heavenly places in Christ. You have come to an innumerable company of angels. That's a description of New Testament worship. We haven't come to a mountain that's burning and smoking and uh, with loud thunder and, and terrifying outward displays of God's presence. But in Christ, we're admitted into heaven and in the company of angels. We're admitted into those depictions of the worship of heaven that we find in the book of Revelation in many instances. And we will share in the joy of an eternity before the throne of God with them as also described in the book of, of Revelation. You know, it's something that we perhaps uh, uh, are familiar with, that we don't appreciate the significance of the fact that uh, we have a kind of fellowship with angels, and uh, we share in this calling to glorify God together. We read this morning that when John fell at the feet of the angel, he was discouraged. He said, worship God. But then he identifies himself as a fellow servant. Yes, we have fellowship with the angels as servants of God. In the Psalms that we sang earlier, we call upon the angels to praise the Lord. These servants of God that are so great in power, who span the centuries, yet us puny, weak human beings call upon them to praise and to glorify God. And we delight in the thought that God is glorified by an innumerable company of angelic beings who extol him day and night. Well, then that leads us finally to consider the fall of of some of the angels, of the demons and evil spirits. Now, the Bible doesn't give great detail about this fall. In in Jude, in chapter 6, there is a, a description of the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. Now, that's not simply a reference to the fact that they were supposed to stay in heaven and they somehow, you know, escaped or left. But it it means that they they left their proper place of the submission to God and his service and love. And he has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Ezekiel 28 has been uh, understood to refer in a figurative way to the to the fall of, of Satan. Uh, they're under uh, this indictment that the prophet brings against the, the king of Tyre, this foreign pagan king. But the thought is that behind this ungodly king was the devil. You know, Satan rules the powers of this age. And so in this word of judgment against this uh, king, it's like it merges into language of God's judgment against uh against satan and and some of the the language here certainly lends itself to that kind of understanding where we read in verse 12 and following you are the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty you were in eden the garden of god every precious stone was your covering 
You are the anointed cherub who covers. I establish you. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walk back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You are perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. It's been uh, said that uh, Satan himself fell because of his pride. Sometimes 1 Timothy 3 verse 6 is cited as uh, as support for that view where uh, a novice is forbidden from entrance into the office of elder in the church lest he be uh, puffed up with pride and fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Again, a suggestion of pride being at the root of this rebellion that took place against God by the devil and uh, those that with him were cast from heaven. It's even been suggestion that the, the thought of, of uh, the creation and exaltation of man and perhaps even uh, the incarnation of the Son of God was a source of envy and dissatisfaction on the part of the devil and wicked spirits. But uh, that does seem to kind of go into the area of speculation, so we should probably just leave that alone. But uh, in any case, uh, there were some of these angels who were created holy and good, who defected, who rebelled against God, who fell away from him. And uh, indeed, uh, any kind of explanation that we might attempt to give from Scripture is uh, incomplete and it's shrouded in mystery because we could ask the question, how could it be that the least thought of sin would enter into the minds of these beings who were created in perfection? What inclined them? How could they veer away from their devotion and service of God? And actually, that's a question that has been asked also with respect to a man created in the image of God. What explains the entrance of sin? If man was created perfect and upright, what what could tip a perfect being in the direction of an evil desire? Why wasn't it immediately rejected? And there's a sense in which, yes, there is a mystery there. And we resort to the fact that God indeed created man capable of falling, capable of using uh, God's gifts, of mind and will against God, that's about as far as we can go. And we must have, uh, confess with respect to man as with respect to the fallen angels that they are wicked of themselves by their own evil choice. They fell by their own wickedness. And that's really in contrast with the others, right? The others that were preserved have persisted and remained in their original state. Then it says, by the grace of God, which is also interesting, isn't it? The devils, the demons are wicked of themselves, but the upright and holy angels were preserved and they maintained their holy place by the grace of God. You know that the Bible speaks of the elect angels? That's a reference in uh, Scripture, 1 Timothy 5, verse 21. Elect angels. God chose in his sovereignty to preserve 
most of those angels from falling away from him, as did some. Yes, we are confronted with the mysteries of, of sin and evil, but we confess that they are wicked of themselves and that those angels that did not follow in this rebellion were upheld and preserved by God. We know that man has become the target of, of the hatred of uh, Satan and demons. Satan takes them captive to his lies. Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. That's how Jesus describes him in John chapter 8. And you know that one of the biggest lies of the, of the devil that appears to be so pervasive today is the idea that the devil himself is a myth, a fairy tale, like a cartoon teacher, uh, a cartoon depiction of a man uh, with horns and red tights, or however he might be uh, depicted and, and ridiculed. And that's an error of terrible consequences because those who deny him show that they are, in fact, under his power. Our confession talks about the error of the of the Sadducees. And you know that the Sadducees were a group of, of religious leaders, actually, in the days of Jesus. And we might say, well, they were uh, the old, uh, uh, the, the, the scriptural counterpart to modern-day liberals because they seemed to be anti-supernaturalist. They were materialist, it appears. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. They didn't believe in angels or spirits. You know, sometimes people think that, that a denial of the supernatural, the denial of, of, uh, of, of the devil is like a modern kind of, uh, way of thinking because, uh, we are so sophisticated nowadays. We're scientific people, right? Back in those days, yeah, they believed in evil spirits. But in fact, it's nothing new. There was a group in Israel that didn't believe in angels or spirits. And uh, it's not irrelevant that they're cited in our confession because that kind of anti-supernaturalism is what rules the minds and hearts of so many people today. Oh, yeah, they dabble in the supernatural. They're fascinated by fantasies. But do they really believe in the devil? I've said it before. Sometimes the great uh, need for people is not to uh, wake up to the reality of God. They profess to believe in God, but they don't seem to believe in the devil and their vulnerability to his lies. The fact that he would present a distorted view of God and destroy them by believing in God the way the devils do. The devil believes in God, although he has sense enough to tremble at it because he knows his judgment is coming. But people live in a, in a, in a world that doesn't really account for the significance, the importance of unseen things. Um, we were discussing just the other day a, a, a sermon, a, uh, an article, I believe it was by Michael Horton that says that we need to, we need to come to church regularly in order to prepare for death. We need to come to church because there we're reminded of, uh, things that extend beyond our day-to-day -day material, uh, existence. And, uh, indeed, people need to wake up to the reality of God, of course, but to the reality also of, uh, this unseen spiritual world. They are out to destroy people. They are out to destroy the church. Our confession focuses on that. They're so corrupt that they are enemies of God and of everything good. They lie in wait for the church and every member of it, like thieves with all their power to destroy and spoil everything by their deception. 
we are called to know our enemy and to know that their doom is indeed uh, certain, as Jude says in verse 6. And it's also certain to them, as our confession acknowledges. They know that their judgment, their torments are coming. They are condemned to everlasting damnation, daily awaiting their torments. Remember uh, the the demon-possessed man that Jesus uh, uh, healed and cured and how these uh, demons cried out, have you come to torment us before the time? The ministry of angels for God's elect will succeed, but hell is prepared for the devil and all his angels. For all of them. There's no escape for them, right? Their their doom, their condemnation is certain for every individual one. And here is a difference, isn't there, between the condemned uh, fallen angels and man. Though having rebelled against God, there is yet a way, a door of escape from judgment. Because Jesus did not take upon himself the nature of angels, but he took upon our nature to suffer in our place, to face the judgment that people deserve, so that by resorting to him and believing in God's gracious provision for a second Adam, for a Savior, that we might be delivered from the wrath to come and that we might rather be assured of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Amen.